Now let's turn to our second reading of scripture, and that's where we'll find our text as well for today. The book of Psalms and Psalm 94. Psalm 94. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? They utter speech and speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet, they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand you, senseless among the people, and you, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. If I say, my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense, and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. And... Again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. And uh, we'll think particularly, with God's help, on the words of verse 19. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Some of us may know that text or have memorized it perhaps from the King James Version of Scripture and the multitude of my thoughts within me. 
this is translated as anxieties. There is a, a reason for that because the Hebrew word underlying thoughts here is an unusual one. It means anxious thoughts. And uh, I suppose most of us are no strangers to these. And neither are we strangers to a multitude of anxious thoughts. And um, our minds can often flit from one to another very quickly with no resolution to any of them. And these anxious thoughts can be thoughts of almost any kind. They can be troubles that are either real or imaginary. They can be concerned with things in the present or even things that might be in the future. We are often anxious about things that have not even happened yet and may never happen. We can have anxiety regarding ourselves or our families or our congregation or indeed our nation or whatever it is. But irrespective of what your anxious thoughts are, it's the solution to them that actually matters. And that's what we have in our text in the multitude of my anxieties within me. Your comforts delight my soul. So God's comforts or God's consolations delight our souls. Now, although that is always true, irrespective of what our anxieties are, it's useful to see just what kind of anxious thoughts the psalmist had in the psalm. And uh, when you read the psalm very carefully, you'll discover what they are. And I suppose if you were going to sum them up, you could sum them up by saying that what gives him particular anxiety at this time is just the sheer prevalence of evil all around him. Now, you may say, well, that's not really what uh, disturbs me at this particular time. But on the other hand, if, if you are the Lord's, you will be disturbed by the prevalence of evil, especially when evil seems to be let loose. Um, it can become very, very oppressive. Uh, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, he spoke of a time when iniquity abounds. He said, at such a time that the love of many would wax or become cold. And how true that is. But he does speak of times when iniquity abounds. Paul speaks of the same thing, that perilous times shall come in the last days, or perilous seasons. And he describes such seasons as being characterized by people loving themselves and being covetous and being dis disrespectful to parents and so on. In other words, while these things are to some degree always the case, there are times and seasons when they are specially the case. Or as Isaiah says, times when the enemy comes in like a flood. And these things will distress the Lord's people. Um, David said in Psalm 119, in verse 136, rivers of water run down my eyes because men do not keep your law. So it wasn't just his own sin that distressed him, but it was the sin all around him. Now let's take a, a closer look at this, and may the Lord help us especially to draw benefit from it in the days in which we live. The first evil that was distressing the psalmist is well worth thinking about in our own situation because it was evil in government or evil in high places, and 
Many of us know anxiety because of that. In verse 20, he asks the question, and of course, keep your Bibles open when we're looking at the scriptures, just for ease of reference. In verse 20, he asks this question, shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? So the throne of iniquity here, he's speaking about an earthly throne. He's speaking about the government. And he describes the government as devising evil by law. In other words, the government is using legislation to outlaw the good and to legislate for the bad. He describes that in the psalm as oppressing the poor and the weak and the godly of the land. Calling good evil and calling evil good. Now these things distress us. These things give us anxious thoughts. We have now reached a stage in our own nation where we are supposed to call the killing of a fully developed child in the womb. We're supposed to call that a good. And when someone rebukes the immorality in the land, the ungodly lifestyles, the acceptance of same-sex marriage and things like that, when someone rebukes such things, we are supposed to call them evil. Now Isaiah tells us in chapter 5 of his prophecy and in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. The the connection there is obvious. These people who are doing that, calling evil good and good evil, are wise in their own eyes, and they are prudent in their own sight. They think they are being wise. They think they are balancing interests and balancing human concerns and balancing rights, rights of reproduction, rights of women, rights to freedom, and so on and so on. They are wise in their own eyes. They are prudent in their own sight. But the Lord says, woe to them, because you call evil good, and you call good evil. That is evil in government. And how distressed we are by that. The second evil that is distressing the psalmist is evil in society generally. And he describes the people who are committing such evil as fools and senseless. Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? And that's because they have become workers of iniquity, boasting in themselves and behaving irreligiously and immorally. Now, it's no surprise when governments are evil that the people are evil too. Uh, Sometimes people wonder about the relationship between these things. Do governments go bad first or do the people go bad first? Uh, How does it work? Well, the fact is that governments and people just act and react upon each other. It's what you would call a vicious cycle. Sometimes the evil in the land is bottom up. It comes from the people. 
And it's then when God sees fit that he gives them rulers according to their own evil desires. Sometimes he allows at the beginning of such things, he allows good rulers to rule over them, to check the people or to stop them. But when the people are determined to behave in an ungodly way, he eventually gives them rulers according to their own desires. And so the situation deteriorates further. Sometimes the evil is top down in the land. Uh, People gain power through their own intrigues, their own lust for it and their own driven ungodly agenda. And the evil is pressed top down. And the sad thing is that people follow the legislation. I mean, perhaps you've realized in recent years how this happened, how this happens. I mean, people have driven legislation through, which is against the will of the people. Consultation after consultation on certain issues, whether it is to do with the unborn or sexual matters or gender issues or whatever it is. And the consultations don't matter because a certain people wish to drive the legislation through. Through, But you see, one of the effects is that once a thing becomes legal, it gradually comes to be accepted by the people. And uh, that's why you had such a change, you see, uh, in in connection with popular opinion. Prior to the legislation of same-sex marriage, the, the vast majority of people were opposed to it. But shortly after it became law, the numbers more or less balanced out. And you see, people in government know that. They know that if you can change the law, you will change people's minds. Because people make the mistake very easily of thinking that once a thing is legal, it is therefore moral. Now, of course, we should know that something can be quite legal, but very immoral. But the governments here have affected the people. Psalm 12 tells us that. On each side walk the wicked when vile men are high in place. And we can say vile women too. When vile men and women are high in place, that's immoral people, then the wicked walk on every side. They're free. They're free to do what they want because legislation has come onto their side. But for us right now, you'll notice that this man of God here in the psalm, this man of God is troubled and anxious about evil in government and evil in society. The third evil that's distressing him or giving him anxious thoughts is that this evil is largely against the Lord's people. Now, it's it's worth noting that, that none of the evil, none of the oppression in this psalm, none of the, the illegality, none of it's done by a foreign power or any oppression at the hand of a foreign power. It's something that happens within God's covenant people themselves. It's happened in Israel, a nation consecrated to God in covenant. Uh, It's done by people who ought to know better, who ought to behave better, people who have had the light of the word of God, people in government and in church, and it's trained against God's heritage. In other words, what you have is people in a blessed covenanted nation, turning around, calling good evil and evil good, and using it especially against the people who are trying to hold on to that heritage. The people who love the covenant, 
the people who love the Lord. In verse 5, these people, well, in verse 4, these people who utter speech and speak insolent things and who boast in themselves, in verse 5 we're told that they break your people, O Lord, in pieces and they afflict your heritage. The, the word heritage means uh, property. They afflict your property or your precious possession. That, that's what God's people are. They are his special property. That, that's who you are. He owns you in a particular way. There's a way in which he owns everything. Everyone and everything. The silver and the gold is mine. The cattle and a thousand hills are mine. But his special property is his own people. They shall be mine, he says, in the day when I make up my jewels. Um, and nothing, nothing is of greater offense to God than to break up God's people and to afflict God's heritage. As Zechariah tells us that uh, to hurt these people is to hurt the apple of his eye. If you touch them, friend, if you touch them in any aggressive or in any afflictive way, you are touching the apple of God's eye. That expression that we often use comes from the scripture, touching the apple of his eye. And even to hurt the least of them is to hurt Christ himself. Inasmuch as you have done that to one of the least of these, my brethren, you do it unto me, says the Lord. And here they are slaying the widow, the stranger, and murdering the fatherless. And uh, of course, the weak and the vulnerable. And uh, you see that so often. And who is it that's easier to pick off in our society than the people of God when their defenses are disappearing one by one? But thankfully, our defense is God. As the psalmist says, the Lord has been my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge. We'll come to that in a little while. Well, then the psalmist is anxious about the evil in government and in society, and especially when it's directed against the Lord's people, the defenseless and the righteous. The other evil that's distressing him is the sheer defiance and the boastfulness and the arrogance of these people. It's not just the evil that they do, but the boastfulness of it, the, the arrogance in verse 4. They utter speech and they speak insolent things. These workers of iniquity boast in themselves. Now, it's astonishing the extent to which man has begun to boast in himself in our particular generation. It's as though the last vestiges of humility are being stripped away and the sheer pride and arrogance of man's heart is coming to the fore. Sometimes, perhaps, <laughs> in your foolishness and me and mine, we doubt how, how proud or how arrogant people are, but... Sometimes when the Lord lets it appear, there's no mistaking it. And the particularly interesting thing here is when these people are doing the evil, I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, but they say this in verse 7, that the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Now, what I mean by saying that this is particularly interesting is that, that these people seem to have a belief in God. But you'll notice that they don't think that God is concerned with what they're doing. And they don't think that what they're doing distresses God in any way, or that God literally pays attention 
in verse 7. Um, I think that connects with verse 20, the, the verse that we saw a minute ago. Shall the throne of iniquity, or the government, which devises evil by law, shall it have fellowship with you? Now, why is the psalmist asking that, do you think? I mean, you would you would think that the throne of iniquity can't have fellowship with God anyway. I mean, that, that should be obvious. Why does he ask the question, shall the throne of iniquity, devising evil by law, shall it have fellowship with you? Well, I think the reason that he's asking the question is because they claim to. The, the very people that are legislating these things, they seem to think not only do they believe in God or have some kind of faith in God, but that God approves of what they're doing that God is not at all out of favor with what they're doing and the steps that they're taking. Now, it's astonishing today how many there are who claim to know God and who claim to be in favor with God while they are acting in direct opposition to God's will and while they're persecuting people who are doing God's will. You find that a lot of the support for ungodly legislation comes from, where? From within the church. You'll find ministers of God who are promoting the ungodly legislation that is taking place. That exactly is what the very thing that's being spoken of by the psalmist here. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with you? Is it possible? Can, can you really have fellowship with God? while you are devising evil by law. Every piece of iniquitous legislation in recent years has found a spokesman from within the church. It's astonishing, but then again, these things are spoken of in scripture. And, you know, when, uh, when every single providence comes around, the godly search the word of God, and when you search the word of God, you find it. And there's a tremendous comfort in the fact that it's been found before, it's been spoken about, it's been prayed about. That gives ourselves tremendous encouragement and strength to continue praying and to continue testifying on the Lord's side. So much that is done against the godly today is done by people who claim to be the Lord's people themselves. And they think God doesn't care. But God does care. In verse 9 to 11, we're told that God records all these things and he judges them. Fools, when will you be wise? The one who planted the year, shall he not hear? The one who formed the eye, shall he not see himself? The one who chastises or instructs the nation, shall he not correct? The one who teaches man knowledge, does he not know the thoughts of man and how futile they are? Friends, whatever is said in churches, in vestries, in committee rooms, in legislatures, in courtrooms, will be proclaimed on the housetop. There is nothing hidden that shall not come to light. Nothing secret that shall not be made known. How true that is. I mean, whoever you are, if you think God's on your side, if you think God is okay with everything you are doing and that he remains somehow in fellowship with you and you in fellowship with him, that is not the case. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Lord said. And he went on further in the chapter that we read to say, 
that we know those who love God by the fact that they keep God's commandments. That is the visible external sign of those who who love the Lord and, and those whom God loves, that they keep his commandments. So the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, cannot have fellowship with him. Now, it's no surprise in the light of all this that, that the psalmist asks, how long? That's how, that's how the, the psalm opens. And that's our question too. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. And in verse 3, Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? That's our question too. How long will this continue? Will this state of affairs continue without kind of some kind of turn or some kind of change? And you'll notice that he asks God for vengeance. As the God to whom vengeance belongs in verse 1. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. He's not wanting personal revenge. That's a very different thing. He's not going to take that. What he wants God to do is to arise himself with his holy vengeance. In other words, he wants God to put things right. He wants God to protect the old and the unborn. He wants God to restore respect for sexual purity within marriage in the land. He wants God to restore through manhood to men, through womanhood to woman through fatherhood to fathers and through motherhood to mothers. He wants God to restore a Sabbath and respect for a Sabbath day's rest. He wants God to restore purity of worship in the land. He wants God to restore reverence for his own name and for his own cause. He wants God to bring back a godly legislature, a godly executive and a godly judiciary, a godly government in the land so that at last evil will be good and good will be evil. He's just, so, so, so that evil will be evil and good will be good. He, he wants, in other words, the situation to change and to turn around, and he's asking God how long until that happens. And these are his anxieties. Now, I suppose in one way they might be far removed from your primary anxieties. Um, but they're all connected, you know. Maybe the concern you have, let, let's say your your primary concern, and this is understandable, most of our primary concerns are close to home. Let's say your concern is for your family or a wayward family. But But what's behind that? Or what's involved in that? Is it not many of the evils that that have allowed been allowed to to go unchecked through the land? Is it not these things that have drawn them away? Look at their lives. Look look now at where they are sunk in their own iniquity. Is it not following the things that have been allowed? The things that have been legislated for? The things that have now been approved? Yes, of course it is. What I really want to turn to is the solution to this. In his text, he says, In the multitude of my anxieties or my anxious thoughts within me, he has one source of comfort. He says, your comforts delight my soul. The comfort that he's got comes from God. It doesn't come from man. In, in verse 16, 
He asks the question, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. In other words, who will rise up for me against the evildoers is a vain cry. There there doesn't seem to be any real help from man. In verse 17, he says, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have settled in silence. That's the silence of having nothing to say, nothing to believe, nothing to hold on to, unless the Lord had been my help. So his help is in God. His help is in God. And uh, the help that God gives him is the help of comfort. It's the help of comfort. Now, the Psalms here are written, of course, in Hebrew originally. And the Jews translated these Hebrew Psalms into Greek uh, quite a while before the Lord was, was born in Nazareth. They translated, in Bethlehem, they, they translated the Psalms into Greek. And they chose a certain word to translate this word comfort. And it's the same word from which we get comforter um, in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the comforter of God in the sense of being the comforter from God. Your comforts, these comforts come from the Holy Spirit himself. So it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that delights your soul. That brings us back, actually, to where we were just a a couple of weeks ago, um, where the Lord encourages us to ask, to seek and to knock. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. And he applies that first and foremost to the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. Ask your father, Christ says, ask him. Ask your father who delights to give you even more than you as a father delight to give your own son. Ask your father for the Holy Spirit, for he delights to give him. So ask your father for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What I want you to notice here, you see, is that and this is so important to notice often anyway, that, that God's, God's gifts are to be asked for. There's nothing automatic about all these things. In the multitude of my anxious thoughts within me, your comforts delight my soul. That doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen that God's comforts delight your soul. You've got to look for that comfort. You've got to make an effort to find it. The comfort comes from the comforter. The comforter is sent to comfort you. But you must ask, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. And notice what this spirit does. This Holy Spirit sends the psalmist right away to the word of God. He sends the psalmist to the word of God. In verse 12, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, and so on. Blessed is the man whom you instruct. 
O Lord. He finds rest there from adversity. The Spirit puts us to the Word. He always puts us to the Word. This Word of thine, my comfort is in my affliction. For in my straits, that's anxious thoughts, I am revived by this, thy word alone. Uh, Let's read that again. Let's read it slowly. Think about it. This word of thine, my comfort is in mine affliction. For in my straits, I am revived by this, thy word alone. How precious that thought is. The Spirit of God will send you for your comfort to the Word of God itself. Now, what does the Word of God bring you? What does the Holy Spirit want the Word of God to bring you? Well, just the specific promises of God that are designed to help you. And the Bible is full of these. Now, sometimes, maybe we are just to delight ourselves in God generally, or in what God has done for us, and that's important. It's the foundation of our supreme joy that we have been elect from the foundation of the world, that we have been begotten again to a living hope, that we have been justified by faith, that there is no condemnation for us, that we have been adopted into the family of God and that we are being prepared for eternity. These are the things of which we thought last forth. I mean, if God is for us, who can be against us? Surely that's a comfort for our souls, whatever our anxious thoughts are. Now, all that is true. But at other times, when you're looking for specific comforts in specific situations, the Holy Spirit will lead you to passages in his own word which have a special relationship to the things that are distressing you. And and you'll notice that the psalmist is comforting himself in the psalm here. He doesn't just ask the questions. He doesn't just speak of the things that are causing him anxiety. You'll notice that all throughout the psalm, there is a comfort in it that he has found in the word of God. Things that the Holy Spirit has led him to. For example, Very generally, in verse 22, he says that the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has found that. And uh, when he has searched the scripture and the comforter has led him to the scripture, he has found the great overarching truth of God's sovereignty to be such a blessing to him that the Lord is always my refuge and the Lord is my defense. He is our keeper and he shall preserve us from all evil. One of the great psalms that we have known, perhaps most of us, by heart uh, from childhood, speaks of God's providential care in the midst of all kind of distress. Thy foot he'll not let slide, nor will he slumber that thee keeps. He that keeps Israel, and Israel represents the people of God in all generations, he slumbers not nor sleeps. The Lord thee keeps, the Lord thy shade, on thy right hand doth stay. That's the place of protection. Moon by night, he shall not smite, nor yet the sun by day. The Lord shall keep thy soul 
He shall preserve thee from all ill, evil. He will preserve you from all evil. This is a hidden preservation so that henceforth thy going out and in God keep forever will. The Lord is your refuge. But then he gets more particular. He's found another comfort in God's word from this. In verse 14, that the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. In other words, um, there's the comfort of knowing that what he has cannot be changed. His, his status as God's precious possession can, can never be lost. I think that again goes back to where we were last week. It's one thing to know that if you are in Christ, you shall be saved. The other question is, shall I always be in Christ? Yes, for the Lord will not cast off his people and neither will he forsake his inheritance. But he goes further. He says in verse 15 that judgment will return to righteousness and the upright in heart will follow it. Judgment will return to righteousness. Now, judgment here means, um, again, it's interchangeable with, with government, laws and statutes. It will return to righteousness. The law of the land will revert. It will change. Government, legislative, executive, judiciary will return to righteousness. And the upright in heart will follow it. That's not just a truism. Um, it's not just stating that the upright will follow uprightness. What he's actually saying there is that there will be a multitude of upright people. That they will multiply in the land. And that the, the renewed godly legislation will be accompanied by an ever-growing multiplying number of upright people in the land, so that righteousness will dwell in the land again. I often refer, and it's right that I should in a covenanting church, one, one of the things for which we have always stood is that the covenants that this nation entered into as a nation before God in the 17th century are unchangeable covenants. We swore as a people, we swore as a government, we swore as a church, to uphold righteousness, God deals with us accordingly. But God remembers that. God remembers that. And it's part of what we cleave to in the scriptures, that, that the Lord will acknowledge that too. And we have a precious promise in the scriptures that the nations of the earth will one day come and acknowledge him. But he will use especially nations that, that are covenanted to himself to accomplish that. Scotland was once a blessing to the land, uh, to the world. Scotland will again be a blessing to the world. And uh, we have such a promise in the Bible. We know things will get better. There are often people who believe that things will just always get worse. Well, friends, we don't believe in that. We believe that there are a multitude of promises in the word of God that have not yet been fulfilled. It's as simple as that, that there are promises of national blessing encompassing the whole earth that have not yet been fulfilled. And the psalmist lays hold of that. He lays hold of it. And we believe that this will change. Judgment will return to righteousness. 
and all the upright in heart will follow it. And when that happens, he says, the wicked shall be cut off. In verse 23, he has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Now, at the particular point that he's saying this, it hasn't happened yet, you see. And sometimes the psalmist speaks of a thing in the past tense, even though it's future. And the reason he does that is because he knows it's true. He can speak of it as an accomplished fact, although it hasn't yet happened. I mean, he's praying for this. Lord, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Shine forth. Um, And then he has brought in them their own iniquity. He shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord, our God, shall cut them off. And where do they go? Well, in verse 13, he says that he will give his own people rest from the days of adversity or in the days of adversity. He will give his people rest until the pit is dug for the wicked. What an awful doom awaits those who are out of Christ. I don't think any of us take it to heart as we ought to take it to heart. Perhaps if we did, our evangelistic zeal would be greater. And our perspective on life would be altogether different. The Lord shall cut them off because there is a pit dug for the wicked and the wicked shall fall into it. So whatever the root of our anxious thoughts were to come to God, come to God, ask for his Holy Spirit, ask for the Comforter. The Comforter will lead you to the Word of God. And in that Word of God, as you read it, and search it prayerfully, asking, seeking, knocking, the relevant things will be shown to you. And what's the result of that, last of all? Well, he says, in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts, he says, delight my soul. Now, I'm going to perhaps at first of all take something from you here, but I, I hope by God's grace I'll give it back. I think that the word delight is a little bit strong for the Hebrew word that lies underneath it. It's, it's not the normal word or one of the normal words that we would translate by delight. It's a rather unusual word, which means at root, it means to stroke or to smooth something. In other words, the primary idea here is, is to soothe. It's to soothe. And I think that's better retained or emphasized in the version here. Delight is is fair enough because you will discover that these comforts will delight your soul, most certainly. But is there not something particularly blessed about this idea of soothing your soul? The reason I'm saying that is because the very problem with the multitude of our anxieties is the dispeace that they cause. It's like the agitation. Isaiah described it, and I refer to it in my prayer, as the, there's no peace to the wicked. We're told that they are like the troubled sea when it can't rest, that's constantly throwing up mire and dirt. Now, that's a, a very profitable theme for a sermon on another day. The wicked like a troubled sea. But sad to say, as Christian people, sometimes we can be like the troubled sea too. One anxious thought after another. But here, the comforter soothes the soul. The the primary idea here isn't so much delight as peace. Peace is the prevalent idea. Peace 
The storm has changed into a calm. At his command and will. So that the waves which raged before. Now quiet are and still. Soothing. Soothing. Your comforts soothe my soul. And how they do. When we really give our attention to them. When we uh, use the word advisedly, but when we allow the Holy Spirit, as it were, I'm not taking away from his sovereignty there at all, but when, when we ask him, when we call upon him, when we seek him, these consolations that God gives, these comforts, bring peace. Uh, there's, there's nothing like just lifting yourself above the world in which you are and um, coming into God's sanctuary, as it were, sharing his vantage point, um, coming alongside him in his sovereignty, knowing that he's working everything together for his good. And, and that's when the peace of God that passes all understanding fills your hearts and minds. You're not agitated so much by what's happening. You're able to delight yourself in God. Well then, let me close just by quoting the text to you again. In the multitude of my anxieties, or in the multitude of my anxious thoughts within me, thy comforts soothe my soul. May it be so with us, and may the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Now let's uh, close by singing to God's praise in the very psalm that we've been looking at here, Psalm 94. And we're singing to the tune Kilmarnock. Psalm 94, at verse 14. For sure the Lord will not cast off those that his people be, neither his own inheritance quit and forsake will he. But judgment unto righteousness shall yet return again. And all shall follow after it that are right-hearted men. Who will rise up for me against those that do wickedly? Who will stand up for me against those that work iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help. When I was sore oppressed, almost my soul had in the house of silence been at rest. When I had uttered this word, my foot doth slip away. Thy mercy held me up, O Lord, thy goodness. Did me stay amidst the multitude of thoughts which in my heart do fight, my soul, lest it be overcharged, thy comforts do delight. Fourteen to nineteen, then to God's praise. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>